This is episode 131 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, My First Job. This episode is part of our Near Daily series during the pandemic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I'm going to tell a really personal story today about my first job. And before I do, I wanted to ask a favor of all of you. It's been kind of strange for me to see my downloads really uh, explode during the pandemic and to see that there's a lot of engagement with the podcast, but not really know who my listeners are. So if you would be willing to take the time to comment or get in touch or somehow let me know like who you are and what you like and any suggestions for the show, I'd be really appreciative and really interested in your stories too uh, before I impose mine upon you. So my first job uh, came about after considerable history with this institution. So I'm going to go into the way back machine, back to uh, when I moved to Indiana when I was five, after my father took a tenure track position in the physics department at Indiana University, uh, which is in Bloomington, Indiana, or otherwise known as uh, Monroe County. And my parents were free spirits, and purchased this huge piece of property outside of Bloomington in a very uh, remote location. We didn't have any neighbors around for a mile or so, and it was our little farmhouse was down this very long uh, driveway, gravel driveway, way down, down into Coon Holler, as we called it. And we really lived there mostly in isolation. My parents believed that children should be raised out in the country uh, with as little interaction with other children as possible, and particularly without a television. And we, you know, were introduced to hard work at a young age. We worked in the big garden, we did maintenance on the property, uh, fencing, planting trees, uh, all kinds of physical labor, digging, carrying. We had to bale hay, grow and bale hay for our horses. Of course, there was a lot of work with the animals, with uh, chickens and dogs and cats, and we raised uh, usually some beef cattle. So lots of hard work. Um, But those were back in the days where... Uh, work was considered something good to engage in. You know, because we didn't have the kinds of labor-saving devices back then that we do now, there was also ironing and washing and washing dishes and just, you know, lots and lots of hard work. So we were introduced to that at a young age. 
It's funny for me to think because I remember turning 10, and that was the age that my mother had said that I could start using the iron, you know, that I was old enough to use the iron. So I was very excited to turn 10 so that I could uh, begin to iron, which seems pretty funny now since I pretty much do everything I can not to have to turn on the iron. I wouldn't say that we were lonely growing up. I didn't consider that uh, characteristic of my childhood. Uh, we had each other. My brother and I were fairly close in age and, you know, pretty friendly. We did a lot of stuff together, played cowboys and Indians and ran around the farm and climbed and played in the barn. And, you know, we would ride horses and play games and all kinds of stuff. But the library was incredibly important to us. And I would say we weren't just avid readers. We were kind of you know, obsessed, ridiculous readers. We would check out huge stacks of books and really consume tremendous amounts of children's literature uh, during the, the 60s. The library in Monroe County had started as a Carnegie library, and it was housed in this really beautiful, neoclassical, solid block limestone building, which is typical of uh, buildings in Monroe County. If any of you are familiar with the movie Breaking Away, they talk in that movie about the limestone uh, and quarry industry in Bloomington. And, and in fact, those are very characteristic for that geographic location. As a small girl going into that library starting at age five, I remember that the entrance was really intimidating. You know, you opened up into this huge doorway and then beyond into it, this huge adult space that uh, seemed very cavernous and, of course, very silent. And I remember you had to go through that whole section in order to get to the little hallway, narrow hallway that led into the children's department. And I always had this sense of relief when I turned into that hallway, like I was going into my safe space. I have one vague recollection of standing at the uh, circulation desk in the main adult area, asking some question. Maybe I was trying to find my mother and the librarians were like peering over this really high countertop down at me like I was some kind of strange uh, appearance in this inappropriate space for me. Like it was just really wrong for me to be standing in the adult section. So running back to the children's department was really like going into a sanctuary. And the children's department was super lively and the librarians were very progressive. And so we were allowed to make noise in there and read and just really have a wonderful time in this bright space. And I can remember almost where all the books were that I just inhaled back then. All the Beverly Cleary books, Boxcar Children, Bobsy Twins, Encyclopedia Brown, Nancy Drew, all the Black Stallion books, which I loved, and the Lloyd Alexander books, those uh, early fantasies. And then some of the books that really struck me at the time, uh, A Day No Pigs Would Die, from the mixed-up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frank Weiler. Uh, some of you will, uh, will remember these books. Island of the Blue Dolphins, Wrinkle in Time, Harriet the Spy, which I loved. And then, you know, some of the sadder books, Red Pony, My Friend Flicka. 
Anyway, I was very emotionally invested in those books. And my mother used to leave me at the library for extended periods of time when she would run errands, uh, when we would come into town so she could run errands. So she'd be going to the feed mill and the hardware store and Farm Bureau and all that, and, and I would just hang out at the library. I don't remember that ever being objected to. I'm sure I wasn't, you know, disruptive or anything. And I didn't mind. I, they had a big table, and I would sit there and read. And at some point, I don't remember quite how this came about. I don't know if I asked if I could help at the desk or if one of the librarians or clerks asked me if I would like you know, an activity. But I found myself like stamping cards with with this little stamp that had the due date on it. And then eventually they let me use the machine to check out people's books. And so there's this really satisfying kerchunk that the machine would make when it uh, stamped the cards. And they discovered that I could alphabetize as I got a little older, and I was allowed to process returned books and shelve them. And you know, I just loved all this, the cards and the books and the card catalog and everything was manual, but it was, you know, there was a system to it that I thought was really genius. I just really understood how all of the pieces of it worked and was really excited to participate in all that, the Dewey Decimal System and how the reserve system worked. And it was just really different than my activities at home. And so I, I really loved that. In 1971, the library moved into a new structure that was also limestone and just a block away, but it was really different, really different inside and different environment. I was really shocked when I showed up to volunteer uh, when they told me I wouldn't be allowed to volunteer behind the desk anymore. And they had installed this new machine that actually took a photograph of the patron's library card, the due date card, and then the book's uh, title card. And so you had to press a button to take the picture. And I guess it had been determined that the volunteers uh, weren't capable of pressing that button. Uh, so at this point, I probably would have been 12, and I maybe was the youngest person to have been made obsolete by automation. Anyway, I remember being kind of surprised and kind of wandering away, you know, a little bit taken aback. But I didn't have long to lick my wounds because I was uh, swept away to France as part of my father's sabbatical year abroad. When we returned from France, I was uh, 14, and I remember my father saying to my mother, not in my presence, but within earshot, and he said, she's 14, she goes to work. So I guess that was his, uh, that was the bright age in his mind when kids were supposed to go to work. And it sounds harsh, but you know, it actually did set me on this path that has led me to this point of talking to you, so I don't have any regrets about that. My father actually spent a lot of time coaching me about work and about responsibilities at work and kind of his ethics of uh, negotiation and labor, his particular ethos about work. I should say, you know, he was very hardworking himself. And in particular, I think of his father as being exceptionally hardworking, was a guy who survived the Depression uh, and provided for his family by moving from Detroit to Texas to pick cotton and then eventually up to Oregon to work in the canning factories up there and eventually got a job working for the Postal Service. Anyway, to say that I come from a family of hard workers is 
an understatement. Anyway, so he told me the way I should get a job is to walk up and down Kirkwood Avenue, which is the main street in Bloomington, and go into every store and introduce myself and ask for work. And he said, someone will hire you. Make it clear that you'll do anything, that you're a good worker, and you're willing to learn. And it seems funny to me in retrospect that it never occurred to us for me to actually look for any kind of work that would involve French, because at that point, having returned from France, my French was, you know, fluent and very good. But anyway, it seems like that never occurred to us. So I did as I was told. I walked up and down the street and, you know, would screw up my courage to go into every storefront and have, you know, people behind the counter either bored or perplexed by having me uh, walk in and stare at me and, and occasionally push a paper application over, across the counter to me. I think I did get a few phone calls. I have a vague recollection that maybe the bagel shop called me. But of course, the place that ended up hiring me was where I had been working for years. And so the children's department of the library hired me as what they called a page back then, someone who shelved books, basically, for 10 hours a week. So every day from high school, I would ride the city shuttle down to the library after school to shelve books and process returns. And I have a vague recollection that like the timing of the shuttle didn't quite sync up right. So I began loading my bike onto uh, the back of our VW bug under this kind of rickety bike rack that we had installed. And then I would get dropped at high school in the morning and then ride down to the library after school, helmetless, of course, because that's how it was done back then. And then I would get picked up after work and then driven out to the farm, which was about 12 miles away. The library had Sunday hours, which was fairly progressive at the time. In fact, even for now, it's probably considered fairly progressive. And that caused some controversy because they often wanted me to work on Sunday, and my parents resisted having to make the drive back and forth into town for no other reason than to drop me at work. And of course, you know, they were busy. They were working. So that was kind of a source of conflict. Occasionally, I rode my bike back and forth, but it was pretty long just for a few hours of of work. I loved that job and my coworkers and especially the librarians who were intensely serious about children's literature and, you know, would discuss the nuances of picture books with great uh, seriousness. It was a wonderful atmosphere, and I actually eventually made enough money at that job to fund my first year of college. The community was extremely supportive of the library, and we had story hours and games and movies and puppet shows and all kinds of amazing animation and programming with very progressive policies and ideas. I remember moving to California and discovering that the libraries here still had fines for overdue materials, which my library, the Monroe County Library, had gotten rid of decades before. And I remember being really smug about that. I think now, actually, the San Diego libraries have eliminated the fines. I did have one dark moment at that job that I'll tell you about, even though I find it very embarrassing. But it does have some... I think there's some aspects of this dark moment that have led me to think a lot about conflicts between people at work. And we all learn in our first jobs, right? 
So even though I knew that collection, like the back of my hand, that children's book collection, the rule was that I wasn't allowed to answer any questions from the patrons about books, like where to find things or recommendations or anything like that. I was supposed to direct everybody to the librarian. And I understood that rule and and even supported it. But one day I broke it. I don't remember the details and, you know, my, in my mind's eye, I've probably made up a whole bunch of excuses for it, but I think it was this mother and daughter who asked me for a specific book that was really quite close to where I was working, and I didn't see the librarian around, and so I just handed them the book. Well, I must have gotten caught because uh, later I got called into the librarian's tiny office Uh, overloaded with all these books. She could barely have room to sit down in there, and I was reprimanded. I think her name was Carol Brown, and I really liked her and just adored her. Um, But she explained, you know, in excruciating detail, you know how this is when you're being reprimanded. It's like, yes, yes, I know that. Anyway, So she explained that librarians have special training that I didn't have, and that's why I was supposed to send people to them, and yada, yada. In retrospect, I'm sure it was a very difficult conversation from her. And, you know, I was a good girl. I wasn't used to being scolded, and I was horrified. I remember being, you know, sick to my stomach, leaving work that day. So for all of you who have been called in and written up and scolded or censured in some way, I feel your pain. And this is where things went wrong. Instead of taking my lumps and moving on, I just couldn't get over it. And so I copped an attitude. I sulked. I wouldn't smile at work. And all the joy went out of my uh, time there. I can't believe I was so terrible. I was only 14, but still, you know, and it hurt the librarian. So she finally called me in and and called me out on my terrible, terrible behavior. I think she might have even cried, which was, oh, I can't even believe I was so awful. Anyway, I cut that out and learned a hard lesson and we survived. And, you know, everything was fine after that, but I still feel very badly about being so immature. Now, that conflict was quite minor compared to the problems that we had with the infamous Rantriever. And the Rantriever was a storage system whereby old books that weren't used very often were kept in these metal boxes that that were about a foot by a foot square. And they were stored on these metal shelves up inside this like two-story high tower and the way you got them was you punch these numbers into a console and the machine would go and it had this robotic arms that would retrieve the box and put it onto a conveyor belt. And eventually, if you were lucky, this metal box would come clattering down this little conveyor belt through this passageway down where you were on the floor with the patrons and it would land with this giant crash behind the circulation desk. And then you'd look through there and see if this ancient book that your patron was waiting for was actually in there. I bet it worked less than half the time. And it was a source of just this horrible frustration to the librarians and staff. It was always breaking down and malfunctioning. And because of that, we had to employ this full-time technician 
who was a contrast to the uh, rest of the staff in, uh, in no small way. He was this, so, so you have to picture this, right? He was this like slovenly guy. He smoked cigars and he had this kind of arrogant approach to all the women that were working there. And so he, he always kind of implied that it was because of us that the system wasn't working correctly, which, of course, just got under everyone's skin horribly. And he would hide out in this back room that had all this junk everywhere. It was just a total mess back there and just stunk to high heaven. And so when the system didn't work, you know, you didn't get your box or whatever, you'd have to go back to his little den and weighed out all his complaints about what we'd done wrong before he would help us. I think he must have just enjoyed torturing these fussy librarians, and and the librarians just openly hated him. It was all, you know, very interesting at my young age. Sometimes he would even have to climb up in the stacks to, like, un you know, untangle some box that had gotten crossways in something. And and so it was never going to be able to get unstuck. And then he'd reappear like some hero, right? He's all, he's all sweaty and his t-shirt is, you know, pulled up over his gut and, oh, it's just so horrible. And the um, librarians, you know, would just be appalled. And he kind of eventually picked up on the fact that they didn't like for him to be hanging around the circulation desk where the boxes were supposed to appear. Like, they didn't like that the public would see him. So then I think that made him even more determined to, like, hang out and talk really loudly about the things that we had done wrong and issue these loud instructions to us about how the system is supposed to work and explain all this stuff to us. Anyway, in retrospect, the whole thing was a giant riot. And my brother, who ended up working at that library also, and I still laugh about the Rantriever and the, the culture around the Rantriever and the conflict around it. It was considered a real technological coup at the time it was installed in the early 70s. And if I can find it, I'll go post some pictures for you because it's pretty funny, this look back in time at early technology. When we all finally gave up on it, I think many people were uh, very relieved when it was eventually cotton-balled. And I'm sure some people felt a real sense of uh, joy when it was uh, removed from the building entirely. It was definitely a retrieval system before its time. So I've been thinking a lot about those early memories of going into the library as a little girl and then eventually becoming uh, old enough to where I could actually work there and earn a paycheck and start learning about conflict at work and all the issues that uh, go into work It's just been a very interesting time for me to think about all that. So I hope you've enjoyed my story. And again, I'd love to hear more about you and uh, your interest in work. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. During the pandemic, we'll be changing our format in honor of those who are quarantined or working on the front lines. We'll put out shorter shows on a daily or near daily basis early in the morning to start your day on a positive and interesting note. We'll be considering work-related issues relevant while COVID-19 is impacting the world. If you have a question or a comment or a message for our listeners, 
please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website, discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-E, where you can also find other resources about working better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces, our work lives, and our lives in general. And thanks for listening. We look forward to returning to our old format when the world has returned to a more normal state. In the meantime, please hang in there, stay safe, and know that I care about you.